On this episode of Come Pray With Me, I will be interviewing Venerable Losink Dondrup of the Guya Samaja Center in Washington, D.C. He will be sharing his story of becoming a monk, and we will learn the differences between different Buddhist sects, who the Bodhisattvas are, and what we can learn from them, and the various roles that the Dalai Lama plays to Buddhists. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for joining us today. So my, uh, my first question is, uh, Buddhism, like many religions, has various sects. What are some of the differences between your sect of Buddhism and some of the other sects out there? So, of course, um, I would say that Buddhism, you know, is a global religion. Um, and to one degree or another, it's fair to say that it is practiced differently in every country to which it spread. It contacted the original culture that was there um, when it spread. And then there was this kind of give and take between the existing culture and the, these new ideas. Uh, and so that that interdependent relationship, you know, led to cer certain teachings being um, adopted, other teachings, you know, not being as as adopted given the existing culture. And then also there are even more complicated um, reasons why certain teachings got written down or translated into various languages and not others and how that impacted the global spread. So in that way, you know, to talk about Buddhism accurately, you know, you, you would have to take into account each individual country's approach. Um, and even within countries, there are there can be different approaches. Uh, for example, our center, we practice in the Tibetan tradition, and within even within the Tibetan tradition, you have four different philosophical schools within that tradition, four main philosophical traditions. Um, but if, if you were to speak about Buddhism, again, globally, there are two major traditions, the Mahayana tradition and the Theravada tradition. Um, but of course, still differences within those. The Mahayana tradition is what you find in the Northern Asian countries, um, like Tibet, like China, Japan, uh, South Korea, different, these Northern Asian countries. Theravada you find more so in the Southern Asian countries, like Myanmar, um, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, countries like that. And so, this major division within Buddhism deals with the end goal or the end result of practice. In the Theravada tradition, the end result or the end goal, the stated goal, is nirvana, which is to achieve a state where the consciousness of the practitioner no longer participates within ordinary cyclic existence. The goal of the Mahayana tradition is different. That, that goal is what we would call full enlightenment um, or Buddhahood, where not only does that consciousness no longer participate in ordinary cyclic existence under the influence of uh, past karma and delusion, but that consciousness can 
choose intentionally to reincarnate within cyclic existence in order to work for the benefit of the sentient beings, the ordinary sentient beings that are there. So that's the main distinction. If you were to kind of divide Buddhism globally into two camps, that would be the main way to do that. Um, that's the easiest way of talking about Buddhism. And so as we do practice in the Tibetan tradition, so we are part of that Mahayana lineage, that lineage of um, schools that are trying to achieve full enlightenment rather than nirvana. So you mentioned cycle existence, which is also referred to as samsara. So could you explain a little bit more about what that means and why the main goal of a lot of Buddhists is to escape the cycle? Sure. So Buddhism is different than the other major religious traditions in a number of ways, um, one of which is that it's not a revealed teaching, it's the direct experience of Shakyamuni Buddha. It's the, the, direct, um, the direct experience or um, what the, the Buddha's observations, his own direct observations through his own training. And so he was an ordinary being, just like, you know, all of us. And then through training his mind, he achieved certain results and then basically taught other people what his, how to also get those same results, um, how to walk in his footsteps and replicate his findings. And so one of those observations was that the, the, the existential condition of all sentient beings is a process of death and rebirth that is beginningless and endless. Uh, that all sentient beings, all ordinary sentient beings, are participating in this cycle of taking rebirth, which means that consciousness... So in Buddhism, the idea is very clear that the body and the mind are two different things, that... Um, that the mind is something that exists before the coming together of the body in, for example, for humans in the womb, and it is something that exists after the physical body dies. But that consciousness, what it ordinarily will do is to associate with form. So in the womb, there, there is a point in the womb when that body becomes a suitable host for consciousness, becomes able to have consciousness associate with it. When that happens, consciousness, this consciousness that pre-existed the body associates with that form, and that association will last until that biological basis is no longer present. And we, we would call that death. We would say that when that physical body dies, that association can no longer remain. But then the, the Buddha's observation was that at that point, the consciousness doesn't cease, it just associates with a different form. And then there's another lifetime, and then there's another death, but then that consciousness just associates with another form. And the Buddha's observation is that that process has been unfolding beginninglessly and will continue to unfold endlessly for each and every individual sentient being, each individual sentient being has its own unique consciousness that is temporarily associated with that form, 
but previously has been associated with other forms, and in the future will continue to be associated with still other forms. So another one of his observations was that some of those forms um, tend to experience a lot of overt suffering. Some of those forms tend to experience very little overt suffering. And some of those forms are, you know, in between those extremes. Humans are generally in between those extremes. We have some suffering, but it's not so great that it's overwhelming. But it's also, you know, it's not a walk in the park either. There is a fair amount of unsatisfactoriness that is kind of baked into the human experience. So what he found then also was that although that is the existential condition of all sentient beings, it's still possible to train the mind in such a way that that consciousness transcends that ordinary natural process, um, which is what he did. He found, he discovered a method, you know, one, one could imagine that that existential condition is inescapable. Um, but he discovered that through specific trainings that there is a method that can be cultivated where consciousness doesn't engage in that normal, natural process of rebirth. Um, and it's, it's better. It, you know, it, there's basically, there's two options. There's door number one, which is that, that normal process. And then there's door number two, which is the enlightened experience, the enlightened state. And the enlightened state is free of all of the drawbacks of ordinary existence, all of the unsatisfactory conditions that, that are baked into normal, natural, ordinary existence. And so the Buddha's point was that it is something we can do. And so if there are advantages to it, then why not? You know, it's basically, it's just, it's advantageous. Um, there are unique benefits that can't be otherwise experienced. So. So you mentioned earlier that some people consciously choose to reincarnate, even though they've already achieved enlightenment as a way to try and teach others and help others. Could you explain a little bit more about these people? So that's the goal of the, of the Mahayana tradition is to become like the Buddha, to become a fully enlightened, a fully awakened being who out of a profound sense of love and compassion understands that although they are free of suffering, they have escaped, you know, the ordinary unpleasantness of, of ordinary existence. There are countless sentient beings who haven't yet done that. And out of a profound sense of love and compassion for those beings, that consciousness, there's, of course, if that consciousness were to just remain completely separate from ordinary existence, then that consciousness would not be able to influence those sentient beings, would not be able to interact, because that they would be basically kind of in a different energetic plane of existence, and there's no crossover. And so they wouldn't be able to ever do anything that in any way benefited those beings. And they, they deeply wish to help those beings to overcome 
their own suffering. And so they, um, they're willing to, out of that profound sense of love and compassion, they're willing to re-enter our world, other you know, places like that, um, in order to lead, in order to guide, in order to benefit the ordinary beings to show them also how they can achieve their enlightenment. So that's what Buddhas do. That's what um, that's what fully enlightened beings do. Uh, is is to is to reincarnate. That's really why uh, the people in the Mahayana tradition. That's really the only reason why people want to achieve full enlightenment is to be able to work for the benefit of sentient beings. So, um, are these called uh, bodhisattvas? So, a bod bodhisattva is a compound word. Um, sattva is person, uh, and bodhi means mind. So, um, or uh, it means awakening. Uh, sorry, it means awakening. So, a person with the mind of awakening. Uh, it, it comes from another word, bodhicitta. Chitta means mind, and bodhi means awakening. So a bodhisattva is a person who has a direct realization of bodhicitta. And bodhicitta, again, it literally means mind of awakening, but that doesn't really tell you anything about what, it, what the definition of it is. Um, the definition of bodhicitta is the wish to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. So a bodhisattva is a person, is just a, a person who could be a relatively, I mean, it's a profound realization to have, um, but it doesn't, it, is, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are an enlightened being. It's a prerequisite step in the, in the process of training to become an enlightened being. Um, it's any person who's had a direct realization of this wish, this aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings, then becomes known as a bodhisattva. Um, so, and then it gets a little bit more complicated, you know, because in some sutras, sometimes there are these celestial manifestations that sometimes are called bodhisattvas, and in other sutras they're called buddhas. So, I mean, in that sense, it gets a little bit more complicated in terms of, um, but also, so that's, again, that it's a little bit, it can be a little bit, a little bit more subtle and complicated when you're talking about Tara or you're talking about Chenrezig or these kind of celestial manifestations because they are called different things at different times. But a, a relatively ordinary being, I mean, compared to us, they're an extraordinary being, but a person can achieve the realization of bodhicitta well before they actually achieve enlightenment. Thank you for clarifying that. In some of the literature I've been reading, those two terms were sort of used interchangeably, so I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't like the same thing being said differently. So my next question is that, um, Specifically, you practice the same sect of Buddhism that the Dalai Lama practices. So how does that influence the way you practice Buddhism and what is the Dalai Lama's role? So his role now, he, he used to be the, the, the Dalai Lamas are a line of reincarnated Lamas. 
Um, so he's he's in a succession of reincarnated lamas, and they used to historically speaking, they had been both the political head and the spiritual head of the Tibetan people in general, all of the Tibetan people. So as I mentioned, there are four main traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, and but he was his line had always historically been the spiritual head and the political head. But he resigned a number of years ago from his political. He wanted the Tibetan people to, to have an elected um, official as their political representative. So he, he resigned from those duties, but still is the spiritual head for all of the Tibetan people. Although it is also true that each of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism have a particular person who is um, the kind of the main person is sort of in charge of their particular tradition. And, and that's even true of our tradition, the Gulug tradition. That person's called the Ganden Tripa. Um, the Ganden Tripa is technically the head of the Gulug tradition. Uh, and so technically he, he's more so in charge of kind of that tradition, but his Holiness certainly um, is paid a great deal of deference by all Tibetans. Um, of course, I'm an, I'm an American, um, but you know all people who practice in Tibetan Buddhism, regardless of tradition, regardless of um, you know sect, they all pay His Holiness a great deal of deference. Um, and he he's generally is most of the four schools. He is also most closely associated with the Gulug tradition um, of, you know, philosophically speaking. Although for this particular Dalai Lama, he has, he has tried really to adopt what's called a rime um, or non-sectarian approach, where he's really tried to embrace all of the four schools. Um, but historically speaking, the line of the Dalai Lamas is, is most closely associated with his Holiness, so of course, people pay a great deal of attention to any advice that he gives or any instructions that he gives um, about what to adopt or what to um, how to practice. Dalai Lama is also a reincarnation of um, Buddhist leader. I believe the name is Avatkshvara. I might be pronouncing that wrong, so I apologize in advance. So, yes, yeah, so he's considered to be um, an enlightened being. Um, and so he he's considered to be what's called, an as, as I mentioned, you know, enlightened beings. When they do reincarnate, the technical term is emanate. So um, when, when a fully enlightened consciousness takes rebirth into ordinary existence, that's referred to as them being an emanation of that fully enlightened consciousness. And so the Buddha of compassion um, has different names. Avalokiteshvara uh, is the Sanskrit name. Chenrezig is the Tibetan name. Um, they both refer to the Buddha. In, in English, we would say the Buddha of compassion. Um, and he is considered to be an emanation of the Buddha of Compassion, um, Avalokiteshvara, Chenrezig, 
um, Quan Yin and in other cultures, that, but the Buddha of compassion. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. So what are the three jewels of Buddhism? So when a person becomes Buddhist, uh, what, what distinguishes or delineates a, a non-Buddhist you know, person from a Buddhist person, even maybe someone who is maybe interested in Buddhism and uses Buddhism to kind of benefit their lives, but they're not technically or fully Buddhist, the dividing line is, is what's called going for refuge um, or taking refuge. And a person takes refuge in the triple gem, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, um, which means that that person from their heart sincerely, genuinely believes that the Buddha, his teachings, and the community of the practitioners who've directly realized his teachings are the, the best sources of protection from suffering that exist in among all of the options um, that that they would place their faith and their trust um, in that uh, as the greatest source of real protection from suffering the buddha the dharma which is his teachings the collection of his teachings and then the sangha um, here it means the arya sangha the, the collection of practitioners who've had a direct non-conceptual realization of his teachings, um, that they form the most reliable, most uh, effective uh, source of how to protect oneself from suffering. Thank you. So... A lot of religions have uh, monks and nuns and they all play different roles. So what are some of the unique aspects of Buddhist monks? What processes does someone have to complete to become one? And then after that, what do their duties consist of? So Buddhism, historically speaking, um, monasticism has always played a, a significant role um, in, in Buddhism historically. The Buddha um, established the first order of monastics during during his lifetime. He was considered a monastic, someone who he left home, he wandered around. You know, he didn't. Um, he only ate food that was offered to him. Um, he observed uh, strict ethical guidelines, um, and then, but the the actually the original. Uh, grouping of monastics didn't really have, their, their minds were so subdued that they didn't actually need formal written down guidelines. But then as the monastic tradition grew, even over the course of the Buddha's lifetime, even just those couple of decades, uh, more and more people started getting interested. And when, you know, of course, um, many ordinary people do have trouble working, you know, do have uncontrolled, unsubdued minds that, you know, they, they have a hard time dealing with their anger. And, and, and a lot of times people were attracted to the teachings because they recognized that they needed help working, you know, subduing their minds. And so um, over those decades, 
there started to be within the community of monastics, there started to be more issues that cropped up. And so the Buddha saw the need to develop a really organized system of rules um, for the monastics to follow so that as soon as they ordained, they would kind of know, okay, here's the here's the actual written down training. Of course, I mean, back then it was all oral. It wasn't written, wasn't actually written down, but it was memorized and transmitted orally, um, eventually became written down, but systematized maybe is a better way of saying, but a, a really systematized uh, and formal training developed over his lifetime. So it's really just um, a system or ethical restraint. Um, it's really not different than, uh, it's, it's more involved in, in some ways than the lay Buddhist um, ethical restraint. Historically speaking, monastics uh, played an, a really important role in learning the, because monastics historically were supported by the lay people so they didn't have jobs, they didn't work the fields, they had time, basically. They just, they were the group that had the most time to devote to the teachings because their, their food was provided for. Basically, their job was to understand the teachings and to practice the teachings. That was their full-time profession. And so the lay people were the people, the community that allowed for that. And so they played a really important role historically in protecting the teachings from decline, um, transmitting them to future generations, creating places of learning, uh, and just protecting and guarding and transmitting the teachings in an unbroken way from generation to generation. So... That has always historically been, you know, the role that monastics have played um, as being kind of the people who just have, whose full-time job it is to do that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, in the West, there are, that's kind of changing in, in, in some ways because a lot of times in the East, the really deep philosophical teachings weren't practice by the lay people, but in the West, a lot, a lot of times that is not, you know, a lot of times the Westerners are still practicing that. Um, so that is being blurred to a certain degree, um, you know, in the West. Um, but still, uh, you know, that there's still a role for that. Um, there really, if a person chooses, it's really just, there is, there's not a required, there's not like a system that a person is obligated to go through, um, a person has to approach a teacher and the teacher has to be willing to give them the ordination. So they have to have a relationship with a teacher that goes back probably a few years. And it's really just up to that teacher to decide. And that teacher may or may not give that student a particular set of instructions for what to do beforehand, or they may just say, okay, let's do it. Um, it really just comes down to, does the teacher believe that that student is capable of conducting themselves in the way that the obligations 
of the training require? And if so, then they would probably go ahead and do it. Um, but in the East, you know, children ordain, um, and then, um, then they decide kind of uh, when they turn 16 or 18 if they want to continue or not. Um, but there isn't really a formal prerequisite process. So I noticed your website has a section titled Practicing Generosity. What does it mean to practice generosity and in what ways does the center contribute to this cause? So generosity is what's is one of the six perfections in, in Buddhism. Um, it's a mind, um, a, a mind that can give without attachment, a mind that's willing to offer whatever is necessary for sentient beings. Um, in terms of that particular section, one way that we mean that is for people to help the center to have what's necessary for the center to exist in order to subsequently be able to then in return offer the teachings. Because we, we at the center, we offer the teachings at no cost to people who may, may wish to um, attend. We don't, we don't um, we have no method for collecting fees for anything that we do. Um, so we just ask uh, for people who are able, whenever they're able, in whatever way that they're able, um, you know, because it is also true that we have a building that has a mortgage and, you know, electricity and those things. There are costs associated with that. So, you know, we do just ask um, for that kind of support in whatever way it's possible. And then in exchange for that, we offer the teachings for free. Um, aside from that, in terms of our, so that's one role that we have in this society is to, uh, to be a place where anyone can come and learn meditation for free, um, learn how to work to develop positive qualities without, you know, if they can't afford, you know, it's, they just attend. That's one way that we try to give back to this community. Um, we also do maintain a year-round um, food donation program um, at the center. We've done some coat drives, things like that. So we, we support food banks and we've done uh, coat drives and things like that also um, as just, you know, being part of the community in general. So you mentioned the uh, six perfections earlier. What are those? So the six perfections, um, it's part of the training, you could say, um, that, that Buddhists, particularly again in the Mahayana tradition, the Tibetan tradition, um, it's an important system of training the mind in things like generosity and patience and joyous effort and ethics and concentration and wisdom. Um, so these trainings that, um, that are considered to be really important to developing the qualities of that, that result in the enlightened state, basically, that the Buddha's observation is that in order for an ordinary being to progress into an enlightened being, um, the trainings in, again, ethical restraint, generosity, patience, a joyous effort, concentration, and wisdom, 
um, are just really important aspects of the overall mental development of progressing toward the enlightened uh, experience. So meditation sort of um, on the rise, like there's a lot of new self-help books and videos that proclaim the benefits of meditation. While on the other hand, Buddhists have been meditating for thousands and thousands of years now. So what are some of the ways that they use meditation in their faith? So I would describe meditation as kind of the inner technology um, of Buddhism. It's, it's a really indispensable part of the process because we, our minds are the ordinary, you know, the untrained mind, the unsubdued mind, the ordinary mind um, is a mind that is very involved in sensory objects, um, kind of in, a, in an uncontrollable way, is very up and down. Um, you know, when a good thing happens, the mind is full of elation, but when a bad thing happens, the mind is full of depression. There's no stability, there's no equanimity in most, you know, in just sort of the average person's mind. That's just kind of, the mind is very um, dependent on what, what happens and what's in the environment and going outward toward the environment to engage in sensory objects. Um, so meditation is the process by which a practitioner learns to disengage from that process and to go inward and to not rely as much on those sensory stimuli to, to recognize that the mind itself is, you know, is in the nature of, of bliss and contentment and peace and that when the mind becomes more subtle, there's no need to, you can understand that there's no need to rely on the, these coarser external things, that there's a, a kind of an internal wellspring of ease and joy and bliss and contentment and peace that's available to a person irrespective of what's happening or what's in the environment. Um, and then there's deeper things in terms of the actual doorway into the enlightened experience, um, which is said to be having a direct non-conceptual insight into the nature of reality. Um, and that depends upon a whole variety of of the factors that would take hours and hours to kind of make clear. Um, but that is something that we can't do until we've become an expert meditator that um, the mind, again, because the mind just isn't, because ordinary existence is natural. It's not, you know, that it's not the enlightened experience you could say is abnormal. It's, it's unnatural. It's doing something that you, that you actually have to consciously cultivate. Then if you don't consciously cultivate it, it won't arise by itself, just in the same way that if you don't exercise, then you won't, then your body, you know, won't be that kind of body. You have to consciously exercise to cultivate that. And if you don't, then the body's, na its natural state isn't to be deeply muscled. Its natural state isn't to be just rippled with muscle if you don't, 
be if you don't actually cultivate that. And in the same way, you know, there's nothing abnormal about being unenlightened. It is absolutely normal. So to cultivate the enlightened experience requires that we intentionally change how the mind functions. And we do that through meditation. We do that through training and concentration, which again is one of the six perfections. Um, and training in wisdom, which is a, you know, side effect, which is a, an aspect of, of content of the meditative path. Um, but without a meditation practice, enlightenment, certainly, and even nirvana certainly would not be possible. Do you have any prayers you would like to share with our audience today? Prayers? Um, so I would say, I mean, the, the, of course, of course, the most ubiquitous prayer in, in Buddhism probably would, would be the refuge, again, going back to the idea of refuge, and that that's what distinguishes a, a Buddhist from a non-Buddhist would be the, the refuge prayer. Um, so people, and that's really common in all traditions. So, you know, it's just, I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, and then there's, you know, um, bodhicitta, um, you know, also where, where you think about bodhicitta as part of that. Um, so uh, that which is more more specific to the Tibetan tradition, where you you really think about um, cultivating the wish to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings, uh, as part of that going for refuge. So refuge and bodhicitta, um, you know, uh, cultivating those minds um, is is something that's ubiqu that's really part of the Tibetan tradition. Um, but just, you know, refuge in general, just, you know, um, thinking of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha as the source of refuge um, is, is practiced in every tradition, um, starting, you know, all meditations with um, thinking about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha as um, being that to which a person goes for refuge. Do you have anything else you would like to discuss today on the program? No, I guess I just always kind of say that, um, you know, that Buddhism suggests, um, Buddhism is, is very much about training the mind. And, um, you know, again, one of, one of the unique features is that it doesn't rely on the idea of a creator being and that it, it just relates to nature um, and that the mind is a natural phenomenon. And so the, the Buddhist observation is that everything matters. Um, everything that we think and that we say and that we do goes into the mind and it creates habits and it creates tendencies and it creates predispositions. Um, so 24 hours, and so that's sort of the good news and the bad news is that 24 hours a day, we're cultivating habits and predispositions um, and tendencies through what we think and what we say and what we do. Um, and so there's an incredible amount of responsibility, personal responsibility, that if we put in, if we sow the seeds of anger or hatred or jealousy or, you know, by, by thinking in those ways, by engaging in those actions, then we're creating the habits of our own suffering. Um, if we think and say and do actions that are motivated by love, compassion, wisdom, generosity, patience, morality, then we're sowing the seeds of our own liberation, our own um, peace and contentment and joy because 
suffering and happiness spring from the mind. Um, they spring principally from the mind. Um, and so that's an incredible amount of personal responsibility and, and you know, a terrifying thought that, you know, it, that everything that we think and that we say and that we do is sowing these seeds that correspond with our own happiness and our own suffering. That's just something to think about how how everything that we think and that we and that we say and that we do, what habits are we creating? What predispositions are we creating? And and how does that relate to our own happiness and our own suffering? Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for your time on the show today. You're actually the first ever monk I've had on the podcast, so congratulations. I hope I'm not the last. No, I hope not, too. And thank you again. I appreciate If you would like to learn more about what Mahayana Buddhists believe and attend meditation services, visit www.guyasamaja.org. Excellent starter books on Buddhism include Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life by Santa Deva, and The Middle Way, Faith Grounded in Reason by the Dalai Lama.